Hello and welcome to our second podcast of a brand new series called The Waterloo Advantage. I'm Dhruv Patel, one of your hosts, a third-year mechatronics engineering student, and co-hosting with me is Varun Kundra, a third-year math student. Today we have a, our very spe- second very special guest, Jackson Mills, who will be talking about his experience at Alarm.com and much, much more. So welcome, Jackson. Could you introduce yourselves to our, for our listeners? Yeah. Um, so a little bit about me. Uh, I'm a fourth year computer science student. Um, I have a big interest in entrepreneurship and, and really understanding how do you make innovation as a process. And so as a result of that, I've tried, uh, I've been programming and I shifted into a PM career, so product management, uh, which is sort of the in-house uh, innovation engine for a lot of big companies. And then uh, in my free time, I teach a course called the Zero Experience, um, which tries to teach entrepreneurship for people with no, regardless of their background in school. Awesome, yeah, so we're really excited to hear all about both your co-op experiences and the Zero Experience Lab. Um, So just to start off, uh, Zero have told me that you've been working at Alarm.com. Can you tell us more about that experience? Yeah, so Alarm.com is a security company, uh, a security technology company. Um, they make the, the software behind a lot of uh, really popular uh, security dealers. Um, and uh, what that means is they make like an app. Uh, one of their offerings is an app that uh, you can connect all your security devices to. So if you have, if you have uh, lights, cameras, uh, you've got a lock, alarm panel, you know, they all are connected to this one app and really lets uh, one person control it all. So as a, as a product manager, what I'm responsible for is finding new features um, and fleshing out what do those look like so that we can really solve uh, an end user need. Um, so an example, uh, this isn't the project I'm working on. Um, I'm not super allowed to talk about that, but uh, an example is they have a feature where you can, uh, you can put a little fence a, a digital fence around your house. And if you cross that fence, it, it'll send you a notification saying if you forgot to close your garage, um, which is a really popular um, feature. So the PM job would be right. to identify sort of ha- what what was important about that and making sure that experience is really good um, when you're using these products. Okay, sounds good. And if I understand correctly, this is your second co-op term with alarm.com, right? And the first time you were the standard SWE role? Uh, yeah, so when I first started, I was a software engineer. Um, and so that was mostly uh, bug bug fixes and uh, uh, writing some automated tests uh, to to help ensure their their code was, uh, or help, help them release with confidence, um, which is a really big thing when you get into uh, enterprise development. The level of, of acceptable bugs is way way higher than with smaller companies like they need they need way fewer to to be confident in their delivery right right so i mean you transitioned from software engineering to product management and i know like this 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 is like a very like i guess common transition um went with with a lot of product managers like could you speak a bit to like um how you transitioned it how you broke into pm from software engineering yeah, um, I will say I think my transition is one of the more uncommon paths um, because the default narrative for people transitioning to product management is, oh crap, I fell into it by accident. 
like nine out of 10 PMs, it's, it's similar to CEOs where if you ask them their origin story, it's, I never meant to be here. Uh, I, I was doing business stuff. I was doing uh, engineering stuff. I was doing uh, sales stuff. And I just started happening to do more things. And oh my gosh, it's a PM role. What happened? Um, in, in, in my case, uh, I, I, did, I did the uh, software engineering. Um, I'd been doing program programming before, but uh, I was finding it, I, I, I was interested in entrepreneurship. Um, so after I, I, I left uh, Alarm.com for the first time um, as part of the co-op program, uh, I went off, learned a bunch about entrepreneurship and tried to start my own thing. Um, and really product management is kind of the center of three different pieces. Um, one is the technical side. What can we build? So that's where the software engineering is really powerful. Um, another is the uh, user experience side. So that's figuring out who, who, who is it you're trying to serve and how do you really figure out what their pain points are? Um, and that's why you hear a lot of uh, people come from sales or other user-centered uh, fields. And the last piece is business. So figuring out what are, how, how, do, how do we make money? How do we uh, do something that helps our brand, helps us scale, um, all that good stuff. Um, and so I stumble, I, entrepreneurship forces you to learn those. And so coming in, I was like, oh, cool. I would love to be a PM because I can continue honing those skills as opposed to I was already doing it and then the skills were like, oh, I guess you are a PM now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's really it's really interesting um, when it comes to product management. I, it, you, you didn't sort of like really touch on like something like project management. Like, do you feel that project management is like exclusively like very different from product management or do you think like it somewhat integrates into it and it's like a super important part of product management? Yeah, so uh, just to highlight the difference, um, product management is, is usually referring to um, fleshing out both the direction of, of the product. So you might be operating where you have incomplete information, like someone says, ow, I stubbed my toe. And you're like, okay, how do we make that better? Um, and you have to figure out, okay, maybe we can make everything fuzzy. Maybe we can uh, make it so you have steel-toed boots um you're with uh, product management you're really in control of where are we going and what problem are we solving in project management it's it that is once you've figured out okay here's what we're going to do how do we do that really fast and really well um so they definitely go together um it's uh and the the reason that they're made distinct though is because in bigger companies um with the specialization that occurs, sometimes those roles are pulled apart. Um, project management tends to be a lot more time, uh, tends to be a lot more, uh, I'm gonna make a quick digression to explain a, a concept I find really useful. Uh, there's this idea of calendar time versus clock time. Mm -hmm. So uh, calendar time is the amount of time in days it takes to do something. So mm -hmm. an example is if you want to set up a meeting with someone that can take a week, um, even though it does not take you a week of like grinding at your computer. <laughs> yeah. Right. 
Clock time is the time you grind at your computer. It's the time you're actively investing to to do something. Mm -hmm. So project management involves a lot of clock time where you're you're, you're doing stuff like checking details, all this stuff. Product management as in the beginning is mostly Mm -hmm. calendar time because it's mostly Mm -hmm. learning and understanding. And that doesn't really happen on the scale of hours. It happens on the scale of days. So could you say that product management is more sort of planning and strategy focused versus project is has a larger focus on the execution? In big companies, yes. And the reason I don't want to make that distinction wholly is because if you combine the two, um, which is often done, uh, you get something that's really powerful where you can both plan and then see the results and adapt to the results. So if you separate them, you end up in this plan, then execute mode. But if you combine them, you get plan, execute, oh shit, we were wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Let's plan again. All right. How did you learn about product management? And are there any like books, blogs, anything like that that you would recommend? Yeah. Um, So uh, a really great textbook, it's a very thick book uh, for product management. It's called Inspired, How to Build Tech Products People Love. It's really focused on tech. Um, product management seems to be a primarily tech, tech-based tech role, uh, as far as I know. There, there are other, the, 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 the non-tech name for product management is like CEO. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not that the, the job is exclusively tech, it's just that, that title for it of building, of both figuring out what to build and building it and you know making it a great experience. That that the product management is just like the tech name for that. That's interesting. Do you think you've like are there a lot of people who have transitioned from a PM into some sort of executive role like a CEO that you know of or into a, being a founder? I think the PM to to founder. I, I'm actually not sure. I don't know anyone personally who went PM to founder. Yeah. But I um I do know people who went from trying entrepreneurship to PM. Um, and it seems like it would make sense that you can go both ways, but I, I just haven't, haven't seen it myself. Yeah. It's, it's funny that you mentioned inspired. I've, uh, I've read the book and I think it's, it's a very interesting book. It has like a large, large focus on like, you know, attaining like product market fit. Um, and I think you sort of touched on this point, um, earlier on was like, you know, it, it's really about understanding your users. I think you said this is like the second pillar to product management. Um, how would you say you've gone about doing that at alarm.com? I mean, given what you can disclose on a podcast, but, um, I'd really like to understand that. So, uh, one of, one of alarm.com's biggest strengths is they have an absolutely amazing support team. Um, so most companies, uh, treat customer support as a, as a loss leader. Like it's, Mm -hmm. it's something you have to do. And your goal is to basically get the customer off the phone as soon as you can, so you can get to the next customer right? Mm. Alarm.com has a very different mindset, which I think is really powerful, which is that this is their customer support uh, is, is, is really designed around how do, how do we help these people figure out how to solve their own problems at scale? And they, they put an, their, their, their motto is best in the world. Like they call it BITW. Um, and it's, it's a really, it's a really powerful tool to, to learn um, about their customers. Um, so one, one, uh, one way 
I that 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 we try at at alarm.com to to learn more about our customer is 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 by is by talking to them um, when they are our dealers. Um, it can be it can be more challenging talking to end users just because those aren't our customers. In the same way, it's it's it can be challenging as a uh, as a hardware manufacturer to talk to the people who buy iPhones. Like it's mm-hmm. you you can't directly go to those customers it, always, but yeah. So that that has been a challenge. Um, but there are definitely uh, dude. Since I since I haven't been there very long, my projects have not been very focused on on user discovery. Like a lot of the information is already within the company. And so it's mostly been talking to internal stakeholders to learn what they learned. Yeah, yeah. That's, I think that like, at least when I think about user discovery and, and stuff, like even when you are building internal, you know, things like, um, you know, I, I, I feel like internal tools are, are quite overlooked when it comes to, to like, you know, user discovery and, 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 and like doing stakeholder analysis. But I feel like you, you, you sort of have this perspective in terms of like, you know, it's probably super important to also understand the internal stakeholders. And especially given the, some of the stuff you've talked about at alarm.com being, you know, if customer support is super important, um, it's probably a really good idea to build, you know, the internal infrastructure um, that, that does that, right? Absolutely. Uh, so one, one thing I, that, that I think is challenging at, at a lot of big companies, uh, I, I think this get over, overlooked, is, uh, well, big companies need an innovation engine, right? So the, mm-hmm. a, a common way for a large company to scale is not just to, you know, solve their pro- the problem that they stand for better and better. It's also to bring more problems into, into the fold. It's to bring other things that they are solving. Um, and so as a result of that, a lot of big companies, one of their primary things they're building is an innovation engine. It's what are the processes, the people, the uh, resources that we need to let people go find interesting problems uh, and solve them effectively, right? Um, right. And there's this, I, I always go to the meta problem. And one of the meta problems is, how do you know if your innovation engine isn't working? Like, how do you, how do you iterate on, on that process? Um, and and that, that can be really hard because you end up with this disconnect where uh, the people who feel process problems uh, are often new to the organization because the, the longer you're in the organization, the more tools you have to work around sort of any issues you run into. Um, and as a result, they, they lack context to effectively solve the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, the solutions, the metaphor I like to use is, if, if you if imagine uh, you're a professor, you're, te- you're teaching a class and you know someone comes up to you after class and says, sir, I need you to double the font on all your slides. And the, the professor like, what? What? You what? You you think of it, you think it through. You're like, okay, let, let me let me see what that would do. Well, if I double the font, I'll have twice as many slides. Hmm. All of my slide orders will get destroyed. This seems like a really really bad idea. Like, it just doesn't make sense for the whole to do that. Mm-hmm. Um. So those sort of requests, um, they they they. They don't have the answer, but what they're really trying to say is, "Hey, I can't read your slides." Um, 
And and in the same way, like uh, the people who are affected by by the problems uh, in process often cannot fully express what's going on, other mm -hmm. than I'm trying to do my job and I really don't know why it's not working, <laughs> yeah, or why right. it feels really really hard. Okay. Um, yeah, and there's a there's a default there's a default strategy which is talk to your manager. Um, but that that itself can be challenging as well. Um, mm -hmm. There's a, a principle uh, I like, which is don't mix uh, feedback and evaluation. If because they're, they're kind of asking for two things, the evaluate like if, you, if you're taking a test, right, right. you're getting graded on it. You're asked to being perf perform as best as you possibly can. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you show any weakness you'll get a bad grade, right? But when you're asking for feedback, the whole point is to show all the ways you're you're not doing well so that you can go figure out what's wrong. So yeah, when you ask the two, it's very confusing. <laughs> yeah, I see what yeah. you Yeah, it's sort of like in one situation, you have to try your best and sort of don't show any chinks in the armor. But in the other situation, like that's the whole point because you're trying to learn and improve, right? Yeah. And so with your manager, it, it, it can be one of those situations where it's like, I want to show you all the ways I'm struggling. But at the same time, I want to show you I'm good at, I'm doing a good job. <laughs> right. And so it's like, well, uh, and in the beginning, you don't necessarily have the trust because you haven't, the way you build trust is by assuming trust and showing those weaknesses to start. Mm -hmm. And so in the beginning, it's like, I'm going to show you how good a job I'm doing. And everyone knows I'm not doing a good job because I don't know what's happening. <laughs> I, I'm new here. I don't understand the process. That takes time. And so it's this weird, like, I want to show you I'm doing super great, but I'm really struggling. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think that means that, like, your manager can't be your mentor? I think, I, I don't think it can't is the right word. I think that, having your manager as your mentor uh, causes like this, this like two paths to occur. People who don't know that this is the game, that you know, your manager actually wants you to do better and doesn't, uh, and, and people who, who never like, who, who do realize that. Um, and the, trick, the tricky part is sometimes the managers themselves uh, lean, lean really heavily on the evaluative rather than the feedback side so it's not even um i don't know what about i think maybe not having your your manager as your mentor might work um i don't know what a better answer is i just have noticed that that is an interesting challenge or problem right and also given that you know most co-ops are four months long some are a bit longer do you think that that's enough time to really have a manager invest in someone like a co-op student Potentially, um, right. it it's tricky <laughs> because yeah, sure. because so one one thing about um, so co-ops are suffer from this to a lesser degree than internships, but both co-ops and internships are often seen as a long-term interview. Um, that's often what it means to the company. They're trying to get someone good at their company, and four months is a pretty cheap relative to four years. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, 
And so you, you once again run into that, that, that mixing where it's, yes, you want them to improve, but also you just want to, like one of the main points of it is just to see if they're good enough at all. Uh, and with such a short time frame, investing can be really tricky. Um, so I think as a result of that, often the co-ops um, the co-ops aren't necessarily built to grow you as much as you can grow. Uh, and so it falls on the uh, the student going into the co-op to sort of figure out how to do that. How do, how do they get the most out of this situation uh, while also making sure that the company is benefiting. Okay. Um, I also wanted to ask about Alarm.com and other companies in this space. Like, for example, I've heard of Verkata, and I was wondering, like, how does Alarm.com compete with them, and perhaps what's the future of, of this space? You know, any insights you might have to share? Uh, I haven't actually heard of Verkata, um, to, to be honest. Oh, right. No, that's fine. Uh, but I just wanted to ask in general, like, I mean, do you have any thoughts on how enterprise security might change in, you know, five to ten years, or any insights you learned that you might be able to apply to other fields perhaps as well? Yeah, um, so one of, uh, I can't talk about so much the future, but I can talk more of a historical lens of okay. what, what was the, the, the change. Um, and so Alarm.com's biggest change to their industry was shifting uh, from security to automation. Um, and the, the broader, so what that means is instead of just having like a security panel that goes off when 911 is needed, uh, they started introducing a bunch of tools and, and devices that let you sort of automate your house. Um, and the most popular one is like video cameras so you can see inside your house, see what's going on at your door, um, mm -hmm. stuff like that. Um, and why that was really powerful is because before the security narrative was one of lock-in where people would buy their security their security system out of sort of fear. And they'd be like, well, I want to feel safe and I'm afraid now. So if I get the security system, I'll feel safe. Right. Um, and then years would go by and they're still paying a monthly subscription and they have not interacted with their, their system once. Mm -hmm. uh, other than maybe it starts beeping because it runs out of batteries, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so if you were to call that customer as a security company, they'd be like, oh, wow, thanks for calling. I would love to cancel. <laughs> right. That's so there was this huge fear of talking to the customer because they were not getting recurring value, but they were getting recurringly charged. Mm -hmm. um, and the shift that uh, sort of alarm.com brought was by having all these other, these other devices that people actually use on a daily basis, now they are, they are getting value on a daily basis out of their security system. Uh, they're getting a daily value, sorry, out of their devices. You, you hopefully are not calling 911 every day. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so what happened is now people, their, their customers are way more sticky. They, they stay for much longer uh, and they're, they feel much more positively about that. Um, and the general trend here is, is, is moving away from uh, sort of moving, moving from like a one-time uh, one event and moving into sort of a continuous, we're here for you uh, model.
which has been really powerful. Um, and the reason that I, I mark this as sort of like the change in the industry is because a lot of security dealers didn't believe that their customers wanted automation stuff, um, which is really interesting because once they switch, a lot of customers do buy it and it's great for upsell. Um, but it speaks to where, where companies may sometimes get confused, uh, thinking that what they're selling is what the problem is. They, they confuse like uh, an example of this, Fitbit learned this, like Fitbit is a product and it was also the company name originally because mm -hmm. they're like, our solution is, our, is Fitbit. We sell Fitbit, we are Fitbit. Uh, mm -hmm. But turns out that there's lots of ways you can address like, you know, how do you, how do you live a, a healthy fit life? How do you measure fitness? How do you, uh, how do you build health into, in, how do you build healthy habits? Uh, and if you define yourself by your answer to that question, you, you lose your ability to adapt. Um, so these security companies were, were struggling to achieve the same level of success as the security and automation companies because they, they, they define themselves by what they sold as opposed to what the customer wanted. Right. So if they were perhaps like, you know, too fixated or myopic on their own products instead of, you know, the actual needs of what those products were serving. Yeah. Uh, and, and this is, of course, an overgeneralization. It, this isn't necessarily why that happened or it, it's just a nice narrative of mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. one perspective on it. For sure. Yeah. It's really cool. I think every time I, I speak with you, Jackson, it's like I get so much insight on like, you know, the way you look at problems and, you know, you've started something called the zero experience and I've, I've read a bit about it, um, but I sort of want to shift gears and talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Um, can you tell us like more about like what the zero experience is and how it's associated with the problem lab and the University of Waterloo? Yeah. So the zero experience um, is, is my attempt to answer the question, how do you make an impact uh, when you have no experience? Um, and really, uh, what this, what, what that, what that means is if you, if you, if you have any job experience, you'll, you'll probably remember two or three really awesome moments where you learn something that you feel like you could not have learned any other way. You're like, holy crap, that's what they meant when they said experience. Um, but like the hit rate is so low. <laughs> It's like you spend you spend four months and you get like three. <laughs> uh, and so what I what I my I think one of the key insights uh, driving driving this 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 entrepreneurship program, I, I shouldn't say entrepreneurship. That was another insight. Most people identify with the principles of entrepreneurship once they learn them. They don't identify with the word. To most people, entrepreneurship uh, is a rich genius uh, hiding away in a garage, working on their genius idea alone until it becomes a billion dollars. <laughs> um, and to people who've, who've been in the ecosystem, they 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 look at uh, they look at it more. It's not a genius idea. It's it's really hard to have a genius idea. It's some would say impossible. You can probably get lucky. Uh, it's much, much easier to have a really awesome conversation. In a con it, 
if, if you listen to the narrative of, of like, how, how did Apple happen or how did Bill Gates happen? It's like, well, he was in the garage and bam, it happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and then if you if you, if you listen to him to talk about it, it's like, well, I was in the garage, and then I talked to my friends, and then they said you're stupid, and then and then I said no no no, no, but this thing might be right, and they go back and forth, and each time you get a little bit, you you fix it a little bit, um, you fix the idea a little bit, and you can think of it as like having a conversation with someone to see like, hey, I think you said this. And the other person says, nope, you're wrong. <laughs> Here's what I actually said. You're like, ah, I think you said this. And you're like, nope, got it wrong again. It's it's like trying to speak a different language and you're going to get it wrong a whole bunch of times before you understand what they're saying. <laughs> yeah. um, sorry, I, I the, going out a bit, but uh, tying, bringing back to the zero experience, um, uh, a, lo a lot of a lot of the insights that that you really get from experience um, are either teachable or you can learn them by trying to build something yourself. So what what we do in the zero experience is we we consolidate all these all these lessons and the ones that are teachable we teach and the ones that aren't teachable uh, we let you do by building your own startup. Um, and the, the key difference between it and most of the other entrepreneurship resources on campus is you don't need an idea. So a lot of a lot of entrepreneurship, they're like, uh, they're like, okay, come come to us with your your idea for a good venture. Uh, and I think that is a mistake. Because a lot of people who have <laughs> who want to try entrepreneurship are already know how to how bad their ideas are. <laughs> yeah. They they look at them, they're like, yeah, so that's that's Facebook, but worse. And do I even want to be Facebook? <laughs> uh, and as a result, they're like, "Oh, I guess I'm not a good entrepreneur. My ideas suck." When the the whole thing that all these entrepreneurship programs want to teach you at that stage is, first, yes, your idea sucks, and the reason that gets repeated so much is because they are self-selecting for people who have ideas and believe in them. <laughs> Uh, and then second, here's how you get a better one. So before you learn how to get a better one, we're asking you to evaluate if you have a good one and run with it and risk something on it. Uh, so I, I, the zero experience is a way that you can go try all that stuff without any prior experience required, without any prior knowledge of what this stuff is or how it works or any of that stuff. Um, okay. Right. Yeah. So I guess it's like, it's it's sort of in like a, course format but like it, the course format is really like trying out building a startup and it doesn't really matter what your idea is um yeah and okay so like i guess just give me like a rundown of like sort of like what like how the course works or, like you know what 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 sort of like you guys do in the course um just to, like sort of get a better idea yeah absolutely so the the way the course works is uh on mondays uh day might change in the future uh, we meet for a three-hour workshop, um, and I say workshop, not lecture. There are lectures in it, um, but lectures are not the best way to learn most things. Uh, I like the quote: uh, "You shouldn't, you shouldn't lecture yoga." <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's really it, there's 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 skill development time um, and there's team time. So one of the big advantages of the program is there's a bunch of other people who are also passionate about doing stuff 
uh, that matters. <laughs> mm -hmm. So what we do is the very first session um, is is we 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 have you pick one of these billion dollar problems that you're kind of interested in. So a billion dollar problem is something like uh, carbon capture or historical reenactment. Funny enough, it's a billion dollar industry. Um, <laughs> And you come in and we put you into these teams with other people who are like, yeah, that seems kind of interesting. I'm, I kind of like that. Mm -hmm. um, and then for, for three hours, once a week, uh, we teach you stuff, we let you build stuff, uh, and you get to interact with your team and, and, and really it's, it's your project. And after that, uh, there's about one hour of individual deliverables. Um, and that can be stuff uh, one one week we do uh, we do reaching out to people. So the lesson that in week three is how do you actually meet people online? Um, and it turns out it's it's actually really straightforward, even though it's utterly terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so the, the the quick three second summary is keep it simple, direct, and relevant. Um, so you send someone a, a simple, direct, and relevant email. And like they, they respond and you're like, wow, how did this possibly happen? That's not how it works. Um, so to show you that's how it works, we have you actually do it. Um, doesn't do any good to say it works. We just, here's, here's what you do, go contact people. So that week, the deliverables are go reach out to industry experts who you would love to have a conversation with. Um, and okay. one of the principles that we really stand by is the minimum is enough but there's so much more if you want to. Uh, so the goal is that no matter how tough your schedule is, you should have enough time for our program because we're keeping it as small as we possibly can. Uh, this is as opposed to the other ones, which are like, it matters, so it should suck up all your time. No, school, school should suck up all your time because that's your number one priority. We're happy on number two. <laughs> right. So you mentioned small in terms of like time, but also in terms of like the size of the program, can you tell us about how many students are in it and sort of like what are your hopes for maybe scaling it or something like yeah. that? Yeah, so so last term uh, we had 280 applicants, which is insane. That was that was really awesome. Um and so our hope is to to sort of reach reach uh, other students this term. Um our the the, the only thing that we're like, so we, we're working on making it extremely scalable. Our, our goal is to, to, to not, is, is, to, is to sort of build this program into something that lasts as an institution at Waterloo well beyond us. Um, and the, 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 the lessons and the, the value that people get from it, uh, I think applies to almost every student who's, who's here to make an impact um, or who wants a community of people who are motivated. Um, which is a very broad and common uh, desire, I've heard. <laughs> um, so our hope for, 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 for directly for next term is, is to surpass that, um, surpass that number and get over, over 300 students in the program um, because I think it, it, it really does add a lot of value. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. Like 280. So, I mean, I, I, oh, sorry, go ahead, dude. Oh, no, so I, I just wanted to ask, like, um, I think the zero experience is like a super interesting concept. I want to understand your thoughts on like how you feel that the problem you're solving is important. Um, and, and sort of like, 
yeah, like, like you're, you're, you're sort of helping people solve problems. So I want to understand like how you approach the problem you're solving and how that's important. Yeah. So uh, the reason I think this problem really matters. So to reiterate the problem, it's how do you make an impact uh, with no experience? Um, and, and even more so, it's how do you make an impact with no experience when you're doing something else full time? Right. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you make an impact as your part <laughs> if you already have a day job effectively? Uh, and the reason I think this is so, so important is because for a lot of us, it doesn't feel like jumping ship is an option. Like, I know for me, the idea of not going to university was not an option in my family. It wasn't something even remotely considered. Um, and when I went to my first co-op, I, I, I thought, oh, is this, is this it? This is the working world? Whoa, whoa, I'm not sure I like this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, alarm.com was a lot better than that um, but there's a lot of I, I, I really dislike the idea that you need seniority to do s stuff that matters right. because it's, it's mm -hmm. not true uh, right. and so yeah. the point of this is really to give you the tools it, to, to go make that impact regardless of how long you've been there it, it really the reason people think it takes time is because of two, two distinct things that are happening. The first thing is skill development. Now, skill development is slow. It often takes practice. I'm not convinced practice is the only thing that can get you skill development, um, but uh, practice is, is a very time-consuming thing. So that's one, one element of experience. But another element that, that gets confused is insight and insight does not take time insight takes chance <laughs> um so the reason it takes someone 30 years to learn uh to learn that you know oh you should solve problems before solution you should you should identify problems before you try and solve it in the same way you should learn the question before you try to answer it mm -hmm. is not because they were spending 30 years grinding away on the answer that's not it's not a clock time thing it's a it's a calendar time thing it's they just didn't right. happen to talk to someone who knew that but they didn't happen to make that connection until 30 years later yeah and yeah. so for those those calendar time things you don't need experience you need you need to go find the answer <laughs> yeah yeah for sure I and mean, i can see how zero experience lab would be very good for things like that um oh, I I should, I should... oh go ahead I should mention, um, so the zero experience is being offered through the problem lab. And the problem lab right. had that had that insight I just mentioned well, well before I did. They've been running for, uh, I don't know the exact timeline, but they were running since, since before I got to Orlu. Uh, okay. And, and their, their key insight is too many people are trying to answer some answer a question they don't know. So they're trying to solve a problem, but they don't know what the problem is. <laughs> yeah. And I also wanted to ask, like, What's the sort of connection or nature of the relationship between the zero experience uh, program and the problem lab? Mm -hmm. um, so right now, the, the the zero experience is sort of being incubated by the problem lab. Uh, they're really helping us run the pilot uh, and helping us scale into the Waterloo ecosystem. I, I think this program definitely has the potential to scale outside of Waterloo. Um, okay. 
Although Waterloo, I think, is one of the best places to start it because of their culture of innovation. Um, and really, when I talk about like the innovation engine at, at you know, big companies, this is like teaching people how to do their own innovation engine. Um, and that seems to fit Waterloo's ethos perfectly. <laughs> hmm. Right. And then, okay. oh yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to ask, like, sort of, what was the story behind uh, the Zero Experience program and, and how did you meet your, your co-founder? Ah, that's a, that's a great story. Um, so uh, my co-founder's name is Holden, uh, Holden Becks. Um, and he's, he's a, a current founder of Scope Photonics. So they're making a, a, a tunable lens that you can hopefully put on your, your, your phone to, to actually zoom. Most cameras now, they, they use digital tools, but the actual quality of the, the, the photo stays the same. Um, with, hopefully with his tech, you'll be able to actually zoom and that'll make your camera so much better. You, you may notice the abomination that is your phone with like four cameras. That's yeah. solve the same problem. <laughs> yeah, um, I've heard that smartphone cameras are sort of reaching like physical limits. Yeah, so he's he's tackling that. So uh, the way we we became co-founders on the Zero Experience was, uh, I was doing at the time a program on Waterloo called eCoop, um, which is a way you can do a co-op working on your own venture, your own your own startup. Uh, I was not doing super hot. Uh, by traditional standards, I had disproven three ideas, which is great by entrepreneurship standards, terrible from <laughs> making money standards. Uh, but so at the time, COVID just hit. And so we just heard news. I just heard news that the, a bunch of co-op students were not going to get jobs. And I was like, oh, well, how could we give them the same like experience but not pay them? And I was like, aha, entrepreneurship. <laughs> uh, so I went to the, the organizer, Wayne Chang, of this, the eCoop program. And I was like, what are you doing about this? And he's like, I can't do anything about this. I'm, I'm doing like four different things. I'm at already working 200 hours a week. And I was like, oh, yeah, true. Um, and then I drafted up a plan anyway. And I was like, let me do this for free. <laughs> uh, and he was like, sure, cool, OK. <laughs> Uh, and Wayne Chang really, really was very supportive and, and, and really helped us set up the first version of the program, which we called a beautiful name, eCoop Stream 2. <laughs> and about a week after I submitted like that proposal, it was like a 30 page Google Doc whipped up uh, straight from the brain. Uh, Wayne gave me, a, sent me a message like, okay, Holden's your new co founder. Um, cool. And <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> um, and we, we, I knew I'd known Holden before and he described the exact same story <laughs> where he was like, Wayne, what are you doing about this? And Wayne's like, I'm working 200 hours. It's like, okay, how can I help? And he's like, okay, you're now a co-founder. He's like, what? <laughs> um, so that's, that's how we became co-founders. Uh, and then we ran the first pilot, uh, which was we, we had 30 students at, who, were, who were doing this as a full-time co-op. Um, well, we taught eight hours of, or six hours of workshops on Mondays and then really guided them the rest of the week on what to do. 
uh, or at least the questions to be answered. Mm. And then we managed to get it down to, uh, this term was six hours a week. So next term we're going for four because each term you, you learn what really matters. Uh, and it really helps condensing into, as we figure out the formula better. That sort of yeah. answer your, your question, Vern? Yeah, for sure. That was a really interesting story. Did not expect it to end like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think uh, I think the problem lab and some of the stuff you guys are doing is, is like super cool, um, super important. Um, I think we really need it right now. Um, just like I guess like a fun question to ask you, um, yeah. I, I, just for just for uh, just out of curiosity, is like. I think I, I, I've read a lot of the problem lab, uh, problem lab, billion dollar problem um, briefings, mm -hmm. like those PDF documents. Um, like if you were to build something in one of those, uh, let's say you were to build a startup, which one of those problems would you pick and why? So uh, just for the audience, the billion dollar problem briefings are these are these about two page descriptions of a problem that is currently worth at least a billion dollars in industry now. Um, and as a result, you know, these problems are, are like, I like to say they're like death. Death is a massive problem. Mm. <laughs> um, but that doesn't mean I can go solve death. Uh, mm -hmm. They're, they're, they're really, some of them are more, are more directly actionable than others. Um, for example, historical reenactment gives a lot more concrete actions you could take, um, highlighting sort of the uh, the industry for clothes in, in historical reenactment or how do you get the locations, that sort of stuff. Um, but a problem like uh, artificial intelligence data is very, very open-ended. Um, and as a result, I think I've answered this question the other way by actually trying startups that fit within some of the categories. Um, so uh, one of the billion dollar problems is um, uh human or it's it's talent assessment so how do you how do you how do you uh figure out what skills someone actually has um and how do you like the whole job market how do you figure out who's good for what job um and so i my previous startup idea uh feel free feel free to take it um was what if you ha had a way to make job interviews better. And, and by that, I mean, what if you had a tool that could reactively see if someone asked a biased question and then offer up a follow-up question that took the bias at least somewhat out of the conversation? So uh, an example is if I, if I asked, if I asked uh, Varun, like, you know, what is the best experience you've ever had? Mm -hmm. uh, you might be like, ah, yes, this conversation. <laughs> and then the bot might be like, that was a biased question. Here, here you go. Uh, and it's like, ah, you know, when, when was the last time you used that experience uh, to sort of improve your work? Um, sort of moving away from all the theoretical talk into like a practical example of how that, of how they learn and how they, they behave. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I think one of the problems that's always that I shouldn't say that that contributes to the genius narrative. Um, I, I will say everything I've done is learnable. <laughs> uh, one of the problems I became interested in recently was um, the idea of how do you 
take someone with any like regardless of their background what are those skills that they need to go build something impactful right so that's the zero experience question but in in a, in a real sense it's like the talent assessment question where people at like people hiring at companies want you to make a difference uh, very often they're just like please do your job um but they don't tell you this uh because i don't think they're fully aware of it but you are more than your role at a company like if you if you if you if you think okay i am i am this role in my company you will only act up to that bar you cannot you cannot go above that bar because it's not your job right for the really exceptional people they they they've internalized the fact that they are more than the job role they have they'll do the job role absolutely but just because my job role says i should be working on code doesn't mean that's the best way to help the company and some companies allow for this more than others um but if you if you internalize the fact that you're more than your job role really awesome things start happening because you can do stuff that no one could possibly expect mm -hmm. um so an example is at alarm.com they are actually very supportive of this uh, that's why i'm a big fan of working there um and they let you uh they let you find problems that matter and they're very open to having that conversation of how how can i can i do this and they're like yeah yeah that seems like a great idea cool <laughs> So when when I was there as an intern in the first time, uh, I was talking to their in-house training coordinator and we had a conversation. He was like, would you like to give a talk? I'm like, yeah, I'd love to. So I gave a talk on initiative, which is something that you could not possibly have planned beforehand. But because I was this weird person who could do that talk, you get something much better from the variation. So if you internalize the factor more than your job role, that's really powerful. Right. Yeah, and I feel like in, in startups from the founders I've talked to, that's sort of already the baseline, but I guess when the companies mature and they become more perhaps like rigid and more structured, you could say, that kind of goes away slowly, right? It's, 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 it's really tricky. So the reason I believe people define job roles is because they're looking for a commoditized skill, mm -hmm. right? They're saying, this is something I need. I don't care who does it. Right. Um, and as a result, like anything else about you is not selected for. And so I can't really depend on it beforehand. Um, we're actually, this is a key challenge of the zero experience. It's one of the best things you can do uh, for your startup is go talk to customers, right? It's, this is like, Tried and true wisdom. If you're not talking to the people you're trying to help, you probably don't know what problem you're solving. Um, and you probably don't know if your solution is actually answering the question. Um, but, you know, cold calling has a terrible response rate, right? So if our response rate is like 3% for, for cold calls, uh, even though talking to customers is like one of the most fundamental most important things you'll do it's revel it, it it teaches you so so much so fast are it's really tough for us to depend on that because at our scale we know that 97 percent hopefully it's higher than that because we teach good but you know 97 percent of the people we're teaching to can't do it <laughs> even even if we give them time even if we give them resources right 
you just the in that one sample we don't the variation is too high so how do you how do you balance that is it is it just a nice to have do you is it does it become not the focus like when you're operating at that scale it's very hard at least to me it's an unsolved problem of how do you both keep the like the cohort by cohort stuff how do you do the stuff that still scales in addition to getting those variations and making them exceptional okay so i guess i mean i think we'll we'll, we'll cut it off in about 10 to 15 minutes so i kind of want to focus more on i guess you and how you're graduating this year right and yeah. any any plans you have for the next couple of months and years to come that's a tough question. Uh, I like to say that, uh, you know, every for, for people in Marlu, every four months is a year. <laughs> uh, and if you try entrepreneurship, it becomes every every month is a year. <laughs> like it, time, time slows way down. So asking me what I'm going to do in next term is like asking for my five-year plan. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but I know I'm going to keep going with the zero experience. So I know that's going to be a part of it. Um, because it's designed from the bottom up to be part-time, I don't I don't know if I'm going to jump ship full-time on it. I'm not sure about that. Uh, it seems like a very promising possibility to, 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 to scale that up. Um, I, maybe, maybe a better answer, a more useful answer, um, is to talk more about some of my sort of high, higher level philosophy on what what I aim to do throughout, okay. throughout. Um, so different people have different life philosophies uh, mine is how do you have really interesting conversations where you learn something concrete um, so an example uh, they're sometimes called insights they're sometimes called eureka moments whatever they are an example is you should you should know what problem you're solving before you try to solve it um, it sounds really obvious. It's not obvious beforehand. So my goal is to is to get is to have is to learn a bunch of those, and then have them. So I have them uh, for the computer science students with O1 access. Like the algorithm to find them is like uh, exponential. It's <laughs> and be hard. Uh, but the once you know them, you can just access them from memory, and it's awesome. Um, and so to do that involves a lot of uh, high quality, it involves two things. It's a high quality sources of information and high quality tests of information. Um, and in a conversation, you get both. Uh, so that's, that's why I like teaching. When I teach someone, I, I learn what their problem is. And if something I know helps them, I know, I know suddenly a new reason why that matters. Uh, I often don't know before teaching someone what I'm going to teach them. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I, I think your perspectives on things are, are very like, you know, unique. And, and I think it's, 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 I think what you said is very true about, you know, being in water and how like, you know, things change really fast. Um, a lot of learning happens really, really quick. Yeah. Um, I, I, I want to know like one more thing, um, you know, how, how you think about like the concept of opportunity costs, you know, like you're about to graduate. So I, I'm assuming this is probably like 
a super important thing for you is to figure out what the opportunity costs of different things we're going to be working on are. How do you think about opportunity cost? So I had a great lesson in this uh, actually last term um, for my dad. My dad, awesome, very smart. I, I really appreciate it. Um, and he, I, w- I was planning on going full-time on the Zero experience. Um, and what he pointed out was that if you go full-time on the on the Zero experience, what you're giving up is 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 the, the, the last co-op, which is the one that a lot of people look at. And you're giving up the chance to have a, a job that opens up your options uh, in exchange for a job that on paper doesn't look like uh, doesn't look like much yet. Uh, and he pointed out that like if you this like teaching is great part time, it's much harder to do full time because you you either win or lose. Like either it works or it doesn't, and if it doesn't work, it doesn't seem impressive. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that was part of my motivation for reaching out to my com- my previous employer, Alarm.com. That was probably the main motive. One of the main motivations was I realized that you know product management is really hard to break into, um, and there's actually a unique opportunity to to to, to get that experience. Um, so I think one of the one of the, the things about opportunity costs is both you can have a killer opportunity um, and I think you can also do I think you can do about two things two two big things at once I think that's what I've read what's what I felt it's like two big things uh, for me that this term that's a full-time job and zero experience um, and so a way to formally like figure out what the opportunity cost is um, is to figure out. Uh, this is a question I love. What problems in your life are you trying to solve with your career? So a lot of people are like they they get asked the question all the time. What do you want to do with your life? And we can apply that principle I mentioned: problems before solutions. Right now they're asking for the answer, but first let's define the, the question. Right. So the, the the question in order to figure out what the question is. The question you want to answer is, what problems in your life are you trying to solve with your career? Because your career is supposed to be the answer, right? Um, right. So if you can if you can put down a list of those questions, uh, of those those pieces, you might not find one that's the perfect answer, but you'll at least know what trade-offs you're making. Right. Um, and it, it ties in. I know we're, we're nearing the end of time, but it ties into this, this, these two narratives I've heard. One is, I, I, my whole life I was supposed to be a doctor. I went, I tried to be a doctor, <laughs> sucked. Um, and the other one is, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And then they proceed to give you the biggest list of things that it had to do you've ever heard. They're like, it had to be, you know, good work-life balance. It has to have enough prestige that my parents are okay with it. It has to have enough money that I can pay for my mortgage. Da 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 da. And those second people can find unexpected jobs that you could never predict existing. And that's what, that's the narrative of product managers. That's the narrative of CEOs. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So I guess our last question is going to be, uh, what advice would you give, or, sorry, what advice have you received that you're you know comfortable giving to others that you thought was really impactful and perhaps changed the way that you uh, look at things? Um, it's hard for me to answer that question. That's fair. Uh, I can give you an easier one if you want. 
Well, can I can I rephrase it? Of course. In, instead of asking for advice, which is asking for the answer, uh, the reason that's hard to, to answer is because I need to know the audience to answer that question, mm -hmm. right? Um, but the in, in terms of what's an insight that served me super, super well, uh, I think one of the most powerful ones for me is any discipline can be thought of as a language. Um, so an example is biology has their own language, math has its own language. It's they've got algebra, they've got geometry. Those are both unique languages. Um, but there's a lot that they're talking about that's the same. Uh, and so you'll the reason this is so powerful is because if you start looking uh, for the translations, you know there's a special name for them. They're they're called metaphors. If you start looking for the true metaphors, those serve you well. Those connect your knowledge and give you an edge. That's my secret to success is I teach people. And when I teach people, that helps me find metaphors. Um, because my rule in teaching is I can't say something you don't understand, which means I have to speak your language, not mine. So if you can generate those metaphors and then remember them, those are the things that I'm hunting for. And those are the things that are going to give you a huge ability to understand things that you're not supposed to understand. Like you're, you don't have the experience to understand yet. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's super insightful. I think, I think we've, uh, we've had a chat about this before too. Um, yeah, no, that I, I think that's some super, super solid, like take on, on, on this whole, you know, how do you crack like all the different things that you're trying to crack at this age. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, Jackson, thank you so much. Um, it's a pleasure to learn more about your co-op and your passion for problems and your insights in this whole domain. Um, this has been an amazing episode with, you know, another brilliant mind from our very own University of Waterloo. Um, so that's it, folks. Um, see you next time with another episode on the Waterloo Adventure. <laughs>